open there to First Peter chapter three, where if you're new to Christ's community, most of the time we're preaching through books of the Bible, and we're here in First Peter, who opens his letter with some truth about the gospel, but then spends most of his time addressing the congregation. Now, now that you know the truth about the gospel, how does it affect your lives? He's writing back to churches who have already understood the truth. So he sets that foundation, but then for really for most of his letter, he's giving instructions for us in the church. So our pastor here this morning is the apostle, the great apostle Peter. And he's come to a, a concluding segment of the letter, and you can tell it by just looking at verse 8 in the first word. Finally, all of you, it's like a, a marker that Peter has gotten to the end of a section uh, in his letter concerning submission or alignment. Um, how do, as, as people who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, how do we live in this culture? How are we supposed to live in our world, how do we live according to the government? How do we as citizens line up according uh, to or underneath our government? How do we live in our workplaces? How do you line up underneath a boss? How do you live in a marriage? So he, Peter's gone from sort of the biggest picture down to the smallest picture. And now he's at a final point. He wants to give some final instructions for one more group. Finally, he says, all of you or He's looking at his congregation. You, members of the church, how are you supposed to live in relationship to one another? And then he gives five character traits that if you're a member at Christ Community Church, you should evaluate yourself this morning according to these five character traits. Unity of mind as, as believers together. We have a unity of mind. We have sympathy we have brotherly love, we have a tender heart, and we have a humble mind. So that's really the outline of the sermon this morning. But prior to getting to these five character traits, I think it's helpful to make three preliminary comments. Uh, number one, the call for church alignment, Peter's call for the church to forge this cohesive unit, is every bit as difficult as trying to line up underneath a government. It's every bit as difficult as trying to line up underneath the boss. It's every bit as challenging as two people getting married and moving in together. This isn't somehow separate out. These, these are all these things that Peter is asking us to do. All these alignments, all these adjustments with ourselves are difficult, but when you come to the church, it's equally as difficult for us to live in that cohesive unit as it, as it would be for a couple to get married. And let me just give you some Old Testament and New Testament examples of that difficulty. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt, and he's leading them toward the promised land. But his biggest uh, problems, his most intense conflicts don't come when he runs into the Amalekites or the Moabites. His biggest conflict, conflicts, his, his most intense problems comes 
from when he runs into the Israelites. <laughs> when he runs into the people that are following after him is when he has the most problems. And yes, he does have some external enemies, and you see that through the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomies. But his biggest issues come when he has a conflict within his own body. Exodus chapter 16, you remember Exodus, I mean, uh, Moses is standing there and he's standing at the edge of the Red Sea and, and sort of piling up behind him are, are hundreds of thousands, if not a million Israelites. And then behind them piling up is, is Pharaoh and his army and they're bound by the Red Sea and, and God miraculously opens that up and, and they get through. And after they get through, you can imagine, great celebration. Oh, God has saved us. He saved us from 400 years of slavery and captivity. And there's a great celebration, as you could imagine. Forty-five days later, after 400 years of captivity, 45 days later, the whole group of them want to say, Moses, take us back to Egypt. In Numbers chapter 16, a smaller rebellion happens. There's a a group of council members for these thousands of Israelites coming out of Egypt. And one particular man named Korah, He, behind Moses' back, gets 250 leaders. Not just run-of-the-mill, average, garden-variety Israelite. No, I'm getting the leaders. So Korah comes with 250 leaders, and he tries to take over the leadership. So first we have everybody wants to hang Moses. Then we have Korah and 250 leaders. And probably the most painful moment for Moses, Numbers 12, Moses' first wife had died. He remarried probably a black woman. Most commentators would say he remarried a black woman. And we don't know if it was a racial component. We don't know if it was a power struggle. But now two people are opposing Moses, just two. Aaron, his best friend, and Miriam, his sister. I would think that would be the most painful moment. I mean, Aaron, it's, it's been you and me the whole time. I mean, you've been there. You're, you're the one that God gave to me to, to be my voice when I, when I complained that I couldn't speak. Remember, we were, we were in front of Pharaoh. You remember what happened Together, just the two of us. And Miriam, you're, you're my sister. You sang the great song that was written down for all of eternity when we got through the Red Sea. You're, surely you're not going to be against me. No, no, Moses, God's speaking to us too, and you kind of need to exit stage left. In the New Testament, Acts 15 is probably, well, it's one of the most crucial moments in the life of the early church. There's this new group called Christians and the beginning of these this new group. Most of them are Jewish, as you might imagine, especially all the disciples, all their immediate family and followers. They're all Jewish believers that are moving 
they're moving from being Jews into being Christians. It acts as kind of a fluid movement of that transition. And Acts 15 is a decisive point because after a, a little bit of time, Gentiles began to uh, have the gift of the Holy Spirit. They began to come to Christ. And so now we've got the real insiders, the Jewish insiders, and we've got the Gentiles coming in. And the question was, do the Gentile people have to look like the Jewish people in order to be in the church? Do the people coming from the outside have to look like the people that are on the inside before we can get together, before we can have unity? That's the real question. How much do the, does the outsider have to look and dress and eat and sing like the insider before he is really thought of as an insider? See, that's a tough, that's a tough question. That's a question every church has to wrestle with. And so they wrestle that question down. You can read it later in Acts 15. But what I find most fascinating is just on the heels of that, Luke is the writer of, of, of the book of Acts, and he's putting things together. And he decides right after that huge event where they settle this enormous conflict, he says, hey, you know what? I want to remind you of one more conflict that happened. This time it's between two guys. They're both Jewish. They're both insiders. And it's over a much, much smaller issue. It's over, you know, we're going to go on another missionary trip and we're going to make a team. And, you know, one guy wants one guy on the team. One guy doesn't want one guy on the team. We're not talking about a culture trying to move in with another culture. We're just trying to make a roster change. We're just trying to decide which guy gets on the team and which guy doesn't. And the two of the most prominent leaders, Paul and Barnabas, can't agree on that one little thing. And it's the first split. So I say all of that to dispel any false expectation you might have. That as you come into this church, you come into any church and you say, God, you know, even the Christians can't get along. They, you're right. You can, they can. Just as if I moved into your house. And said, well, you know, they pledged faith one to another with God. I mean, they sure were happy that day. What's wrong now? Well, I wouldn't be mystified that you had a problem with your husband or wife. But sometimes we come into the church and we get, we get kind of surprised. Oh, gosh, they don't all get along. Somehow we have that false expectation. And I'm trying to eliminate that expectation. I'm trying to say, I think what Peter is trying to say is that is unity in the church takes just as much energy. It takes just as much effort. It takes just as much wisdom. It takes just as much humility as maintaining unity in your home. In your work relationship, in the culture. Second part, second preliminary comment is if you're here today and you're looking for a church in your evaluation of us, or I would say any church, I would ask you not to look for a church without conflict. Because I don't think that church exists. And if it did, if you joined it, you'd ruin it. So... <laughs> Don't just say, hey, they free from conflict by joins really going to be a problem. So just avoid that. And I would say instead, you want to look for a church that's visibly displaying these five characteristics that we're going to talk about. 
You want to go in and say, yep, you know, they're going to, with this many people and this many different backgrounds and this many denominations and this many, you know, thoughts about different things, there, there is going to be some conflict. But my question is, if I'm coming to this church, how are they resolving that conflict? That's what I would want to know. And if are there, or if they're approaching and trying to resolve that in a godly way, then, then that's a place that I can, can come and, and work with them on. And so we'll take a look at those five characteristics this morning. And my third preliminary comment is that these five characteristics grow out of the ground of the Bible. They don't grow out of the ground of cultural unity. Peter is talking to a very diverse congregation. Here's a here's a group of people who live in small towns in what's now modern day Turkey or Asia Minor. And there's all kinds of little tribal groups that are part of this one church. Then there's some displaced Jews that are in this area, and they've, they're part of the church. So you've got sort of the locals, and then you've got the Jewish people. They have different culture, different customs, and they've been displaced. They're a part of the church. And then you've got Romans that are moving out into the Roman territories, and they're part of the church. So you see, you see what Peter's looking at? He's looking at a, a totally diverse group of people in his congregation. And he's not hoping that they can get on the same page because they have the same culture. That's not possible. He's trusting that they can get on the same page because they're reading the same Bible, not coming from the same culture. And so Peter wants us to understand that the, the only hope that we have for staying together is a is a biblical worldview. And let me just give you three points or three reasons that we we can see that from the Bible. We know from the Bible all human beings are made in God's image. So we know that. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter your culture. Every human being, absolutely everyone, is made in the image of God. So that puts us all on the same playing field. Nobody's somehow different. Nobody's more or less special. We're all made... In God's image, we know that from Genesis. We know from the Bible that we're unified, absolutely unified in our sin and corruption. Romans 3 says this, there is no one righteous. And it doesn't say, you know, except for Paul Phillips, you know, in year 2000, he'll be good. No, there's no one righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Everyone is turned away. They have become worthless. No one does good. Nope. Not even one. You get the feeling Paul's trying to hammer home his point there. See, see, you and I are so sinful, we're in a dead heat. We're in a photo finish. It's, it's not like we could say, oh, yeah, but he's, he's really outdistancing me in my sin. A dead person wouldn't look to another dead person and say, well, I'm just not quite as dead as you are. <laughs> no, if you're dead, you're just dead. There's no degrees of death. You're just either dead or you're alive. There's no, no differentiation. And so when we come, we are all coming saying we are made in the image of God and we are in a dead heat for our sin. So we would never look at another person and say, oh, they're so much worse than I am. They're so much more dead than I was. That's not possible. 
We also know, finally, from Revelation 5, 9, that Jesus, is with his, that Jesus, with his blood, purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and he made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. Jesus saw that condition. He saw the image that had been marred by sin. He saw that everyone was in a dead heat to, to run away from God. And he came and he purchased by his blood men for God, men and women. And so you can just, just in knowing that thing, those pieces of the Bible from hearing from John in Revelation 5, the vanity in a church when, when one culture, one style, one age group, one demographic, one pastor, one elder, one founder, one highly educated person or wealthy person, when anybody exhausts themselves over another, what vanity. Oh, what vanity. That's a person who doesn't understand their own sin. That, doesn't, that person doesn't understand they were purchased by Jesus' blood. They didn't make it on their own. Everybody who comes, everybody who makes it into the church, makes it in by grace alone. So understanding that, having that worldview, understanding that's where we're starting point is, eliminates or obliterates any kind of culture, any kind of wealth, any kind of education, any kind of style, any kind of demographic, because God has saved everybody by the same way. They all have the same need and they all come through the same door marked by grace. So if we understand that, then we have a chance. That's that's just the foundation. Then we have a chance to now operate in these five traits. Does that make sense? You, you, you're nodding your head. Okay, good. That's a long introduction, but I think if we don't understand that ground, we'll just try to do the five traits. And I want you to do the five traits, but I want it to grow out of the ground of the gospel. That's going to be your motivation. That's going to be the soil that provides an opportunity for you to be tenderhearted towards someone who's reviling you. I don't want to be tenderhearted as your pastor if you're reviling me. Naturally. But what would cause me not to revile in return? What's going to be the motivation? What's going to be the fertilizer for my heart to be tenderhearted? You see, it's such an important piece. It's such a critical piece. We couldn't possibly overemphasize it. That's why the gospel is always... Always at the center. Okay, so let's look at these five traits, and we'll have to go quickly. Number one, unity of mind, or your version might say like-minded. Warren Wearsby in his commentary says this, Unity doesn't mean uniformity. No, it means cooperation in the midst of diversity. So we're going to have general cooperation in the midst of diversity. Paul in Romans chapter 12 talks about the, the, this. His, he's trying to use a picture word picture and he uses the human body and he says, just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function. In other words, there's not there's not unit, there's not uniformity, but there's unity. 
So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Each member belongs to the other. So if I want to walk to to this side of the stage, my mind is saying, let's all move in one direction. But different parts of my body are enabling me to get over here. But we're saying, even though my hands and feet and knees and hips and shoulders, they're all doing something different. Together, even though we're doing something different, we're not uniform. We're unity in our destination. We're trying to get to a particular place. And that's the way Paul sees the body of Christ, that they're coming and saying, yes, they all have some different functions, but they're all moving together in one mind. They're saying this is the definite direction that we're trying to go. And so if you intend the inquirer's weekend, which I mentioned in the announcement, you'll hear me say at some point, you need to to ask yourself, you need to examine who we are and where we're going, and you need to examine yourself and say, theologically, doctrinally, philosophically, are you are you unified enough to move in the same direction? Can you say, yes, I want I want to go in the destination or the direction that Christ Community Church is going? Now, it's not going to be absolute perfection because there are going to be some pieces that you'd say, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. Or maybe I wouldn't say it quite that way. But my question is, is are, can you be a part of the body that says I'm moving out in that direction? And if you would say, no, I'm really trying to go uh, some in that direction, but I would like also to go in that direction. Then I would ask you to seriously consider trying to find a place that you can say, even though I'm not in uniformity, I'm in unity in the direction that we're trying to go as a church. That will be helpful for you as you grow in your question and answer about which church you might want to join. There has to be a a, a mindset that says, yes, we are moving in that particular direction. And one of my questions here was, does doctrinal unity Does theological unity guarantee congregational unity? If we all could come to the Bible and say in one voice, whatever the issue is, we agree. Would that mean we would have, would that guarantee congregational unity? (laughs) No, no, no. No, it wouldn't. It just seems like it should. That's what you want to say. It seems like you should, but it doesn't. Definitely does not. And this is where I think Peter is just brilliant in his analysis. And I wouldn't have seen this unless I'd studied it all week long. But, But he has an equation here, and I just want you to see the equation for unity. One part mental, four parts emotional. You see that you've got to have a, a mental agreement. You have to be a, a like you have to be like minded. But then he's got four parts emotional. There's got to be sympathy, love, tenderness and humility. You see that? That's so important. You've, you've got to have a, a mental maturity. And in order to stay together in a unified way, you've got to have an emotional maturity. You could all agree that you want to go in that direction. But if you don't have the emotional maturity, it's going to be very difficult to move in that direction. 
And I think when when this is I think this is what Paul was getting to when he had you remember in First Timothy three he gives the list of qualifications for an elder. And one of the things he says is you have to be able to teach. In other words, you know enough of the scriptures that you can point somebody in a definite direction and then you can walk with them and arrive in that direction, mainly the gospel. You have to be able to teach the gospel. Then he has different characteristics. And one of the characteristics he mentions is you, you can't be quarrelsome. Which I think is just interesting because he doesn't say right I've known many people who are right, but quarrelsome. And he's saying, you know, you might have somebody who's just doctrinally right, but emotionally not mature enough to be in a group not to be quarrelsome. It's a huge difference. You can get all the smartest guys in the room and not be unified. Because all the smartest guys or girls in the room might not have the emotional maturity to say we can stay unified. And Peter understands it somehow brilliantly by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, yes, you do need to be concerned about doctrine. I think that's why he puts that first. You have to have a mental understanding of what you believe about the gospel and how you get towards the cross. But then when you're as a unified body, you have to have some emotional maturity. And these are the next four things that he mentions. Sympathy. You're sharing the same feelings. First Corinthians 12, there should be no division in the body, but each part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, Every part rejoices with it. Same body analogy. In other words, if I were in the Super Bowl and I had the leg that kicked the winning field goal with time running out, that would be my dream. Actually, that wouldn't be my dream. I'd be petrified and I just wouldn't want I'd want to be something else. But if I did, if I had the leg that kicked the winning field goal, what would my arms do when it was going through? That's what I would be saying. My arms would be celebrating what my leg did. Does that make sense? And that's what a body of Christ needs to do. Somebody's going to do something great. And the body of Christ needs to say, I can celebrate that with you. And if I bruise my shoulder, then my hand wants to soothe my pain. And so that's the picture. And I think it's important for everybody, but I think it's particularly important if you're here and you're a widow or you're single or you're a college student and you're away from home. You're a Marine and you're, you've been displaced from your family. I mean, who do they have to celebrate? Well, I can go home. I have my wife, my two kids. But, I mean, if they have something great happen, can you, as the body of Christ, say, I want to raise my hands for that. I want to celebrate that. And if they have a a difficult day, who's going to soften that blow? And Peter's saying, that's that's supposed to be you guys. You're supposed to do that. And so I would encourage you. There's not a program that we can implement for this. This has got to be you looking around and saying, how can I how can I share the feelings of those people and particularly being sensitive to those people who don't have somebody else to celebrate with them or maybe to soothe or sympathize 
when they have a painful moment. Brotherly love, this is the second of the emotional components. You know this word in the Greek, Philadelphia. And Peter is saying, you know, you have a certain connection with your family. You know, blood is thicker than water. You have a certain connection to them. And, and what I'm trying to ask you as a members of the church is, is I want your emotional connection with your family to mirror the emotional connection you feel with your church. And some of you are going, hmm, I don't like my family too much. So, But, I mean, you get the idea, do you not? Just an illustration. But you have a certain affection for you. You have some connection that can never be severed. And he's saying, I want you to have that same kind of feeling, that same kind of brotherly love inside your own church family. And then Peter quotes, you see, in verse 10 through 12, he quotes from Psalm 34. And I just want to use parts of that psalm to identify what I think brotherly love means in this particular context. Verse 10 Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So brotherly love means I'm not going to use my tongue to harm or speak evil against my brother or sister. Even if they revile, I'm not going to revile in return. James, remember in the book of James, says the tongue, it's a tiny, it's just a tiny little thing. But what does it do? What does it have the power of? It can set the whole world on fire. One person using one tiny muscle in Christ's community church can set the whole, whole church on fire. And so you have to examine, what am I saying about people, especially when they're not around? Verse 11, I will, I will love my brother. See, let him turn away from evil and do good. I will, I will love my brother by turning him from evil. This, this is risking a lot of relational and maybe emotional capital. When we baptize, you know, an infant and we bring him out here, you know what we're saying is if, if that child grows up and tries to scale the wall or if the parents want to split up and try to scale the wall, we're saying, hey, we're going to try to scale the wall after you. And we can't demand that you do things, but we can say we're going to chase after you. We're going to try to stand in the way of evil. We're going to try to block that from happening for you my son, or you as the parents. And so you have to ask yourself, are you, are you really, really willing to, to risk your relational capital? Are you really willing to risk your emotional capital for standing in the way? That's brotherly love. And then finally, the end of that verse 11, I will seek peace and pursue it. In other words, I'm not going to stand at a distance and be suspicious of what they think of me. I'm going to seek peace. I'm going to seek initiative. Sometimes Nancy will say, are you happy? <laughs> and I'll say, why? You just don't look it. 
And so I think I've got to work towards that because I could just have this mm, stern look. Not that she's ever felt it or my kids, but just case. And so if you feel that way, you could feel like, uh oh, he's we're sideways. We're there's something wrong. I've gotten some space. I'm now that there's space. Suspicion starts to grow. That's going to that is going to happen. It has happened. I'm sure it has. If you've been a member here and what Peter saying is when that happens, you're going to be the the big person and seek. You're going to you're going to move. You're not going to wait for Paul to get a happy look on his face. You're going to say, Paul, did I do anything? You know, that's the that's the nature of this family. You're going to be the initiator. And imagine a church where everyone was initiating. Well, it'd be so much easier. You know, just thinking about this, you realize you can't sit in the back and leave early and be a part of the church. Now, I'm not blaming anybody in the back here. Please come back next week. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, that might be, honestly, if I weren't the pastor, I might be one of these people. It's a sad reality. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired relationally and blah, blah, blah. I just want to come, get fed, go home. You know, if I talk to somebody, it takes energy out of me. And so... Um, Gosh, that's such a bad thing to see. I mean, this is on tape right now. Okay, so stop beating up yourself. Okay, so that could be your tendency. And you notice what Peter's saying. All these things, you can't be that way and be this way. You've got to be connected like a family. The tall order. Tender-hearted. Be compassionate. Paul says, be compassionate, forgiving one another just as Christ Forgave you. So, so Peter is saying, look, you know, you're a Christian. You're a member of the church. You're a, in the congregation. You're, you know, don't you? You know. He was tenderhearted towards you. He, he took the initiative towards you. When you reviled him, he didn't revile in return. That's, that's the model. That's the ground. So that when you're sitting here and you're experiencing many of those same horizontal issues... You'll, you'll reflect back and you'll say, no, 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 I can be tenderhearted. And I don't know, but I wonder what Peter might have thought when he's writing that down. Tenderhearted. Yeah, I, I remember when I threw Jesus underneath the bus. I remember when I reviled my friend. And the next time I saw him. He didn't revile in return. And I wonder if Peter, as a pastor, I know he had to feel this tension in his congregation at different points. Somebody had to come and say, I just don't like his style. He's got that wrong. And somebody threw Peter under the bus. And I just wonder at that moment if he thought, hey, you know what? It's OK. I don't I don't need to get after that. Why? Because I remember doing that myself. And I still had somebody who loves me. So when it gets difficult, see, you've got to come back to the ground. Or else it's going to be difficult to operate out of your own strength. Finally, you have to have a humble mind. And we talked about this actually in our affirmation, which is why it was chosen. In humility, Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. Mm. 
Again, Peter. He's the pastor. He's saying, hey, you know what? Consider other people better than you. (laughs) I mean, what was Peter known for in the disciples for the three years that they're traveling around with Jesus? This constant refrain. Who's going to be the greatest? Constantly, it's like, uh, I, I was thinking about this, it's like a group of high school guys who are always calling shotgun. And, you know, you're at the basketball game, time's winding down. It doesn't make any sense unless you're 16 and you're a boy. I don't know why guys do this, but I did it. Shotgun, I mean, just out of nowhere, shotgun. Shotgun. And it's like a law. I mean, it's like in concrete. I said shotgun at the two-minute mark. And then, of course, your friend, Steve, you know, I said shotgun before we got out of the car, before we went. I said shotgun is my first words out of my mother's womb. I'm, I mean, that's how guys begin to argue. It's totally foolish. And that's sort of what you get the feeling. These disciples are walking around with Jesus going, shotgun, hey, I said it first, I'm going to be first. And imagine the transformation that now Peter's saying, hey, you know what? Work to be last. Work to get in the back. In humility, consider that other people are just better than you. You You don't have to say everything you want to say. You don't have to be right every time. You don't have to be in the front seat. I mean, what a transition and what a what a spirit, what a feel of grace it would be if a new person came into Christ Community Church and and they tried everybody collectively collectively tried to put that person in the front seat instead of them taking the front seat. However that might look. Maintaining this kind of unity is every bit as difficult as maintaining that kind of unity in the government, in your workplace, or in your marriage. Peter wants to, he's looking at his congregation saying, but we got to stay together. we got to stay together. Any uh, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit fans, a few people? Such a great movie. And... Um, Gandalf, if you haven't seen the movie, this you can understand the illustration. Gandalf, the great wizard, he's leading these 13 dwarfs to back to their home. They've lost their home, and they're trying to get back to their home. And so the wizard's leading them back to their home, but in order to get home, they've got to fight all these kinds of situations. And mostly they have to fight these really gross-looking characters called orcs, which would give you nightmares if you saw them, so... You tend towards that. Don't see an orc. But the whole time, I mean, at least half the movie, they're running around these 13 dwarfs. They have really no chance against the orcs. And but they got Gandalf saying, you know, keep let's go this way. Let's go this way. And three or four times during the movie, I noticed that Gandalf looks back at the 13 dwarfs who are sort of scattered. And this is what he say. Stay together. stay together. If one or two of you get split off, I mean, 
we're going to lose you. So that's how I see Peter, our pastor, here this morning. He's looking over all of us, little dwarfs. We're trying to go home. And he's, he's saying, hey, you've got to stay together. The way you stay together is Christ. So it's a great day to have communion, isn't it? And so maybe, of course, in a communion time, you're aware of Christ, what he's done for you. But today might be a day to take a moment, an extra moment, just to look at the people coming and say, hey, that's my family. I've got, I've got to be relationally connected to them. I've got to stay together. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your table, we really need to meet you. And we're so thankful that even though your disciples were arguing about who's the greatest in that moment, you took the bread and you said, you took the initiative. This is my body. I'm giving it to you. I'm giving it for you. And this is the blood of a new covenant, a new way that we can stay together, which will be shed for you. And every time you, you gather together, remember, remember what I've done. Remember to circle around this table and not another table and to stay together. In Jesus' name, amen.